In the opening editor's note of the most recent edition of the magazine, The American Scholar, Robert Wilson describes this week's rally guest with the following. Without ever saying, hey, look at me, he manages to convey some quality in himself that others are drawn to. What he presents as chance encounters feel to us to be an inevitable pattern. I share this because it's so true. While you're only going to hear a small fraction of my conversations with Steve Eisenberg on today's show, I think it will be enough for you to leave with the same sentiment. I could go on and on about all the crazy cool people Steve has known and things he's done in his lengthy career that span a six-page resume, but we're going to focus on just a few for today's show. For Robert Wilson, he was particularly talking about Steve's interactions with Bobby Kennedy. This is 1968. Steve is showing me a picture hanging on the wall in the entryway of his home in Manhattan. It's just, uh, it's in Oregon. This is Senator Robert F. Kennedy. This is me running this small county. And this is about several days before he was assassinated in Los Angeles. On this season finale of Rally, you're going to hear from Steve Eisenberg, whose career includes being the publisher of the papers I work for now. This show won't cover much of his time there, but it's going to focus on what he did right after that. On this episode, Steve tells us about one of the only major general interest newspapers that's been launched in decades. His story doesn't end happily, at least for the newspaper. The question wasn't, how can we change the speed and gear so that we sustain New York Newsday, but we reduce its cost, we make it a different level of investment, let's just cut it off, let's kill it, let's make an end of it. And uh, that'll be our triumph for today. You know, send 800 people home. Uh, and eventually that's what happened. This is Rally, a show about business leaders facing failure and bouncing back. I'm your host, Michaela Bennett. Could you please state your name and some of your previous job titles for me? Steven Eisenberg, formerly assistant to the budget director of New York City and then assistant to the mayor and chief of staff to Mayor John V. Lindsay. Uh, then I was a litigator in a law firm uh, and then um, began my newspaper career, which started out as assistant to the publisher of Newsday. Then I became the publisher of Stanford Advocate and Greenwich Time, and I came to be the associate a publisher of Newsday, um, and then the executive vice president of the Los Angeles Times, then the publisher of New York Newsday. His job titles continue, but before we get to all that, let's back up. Steve was born in Detroit, Michigan, but he primarily grew up in Los Angeles. That's probably what caused him to describe his early career this way. Sort of like a B-movie, a few days after I graduated with really not knowing what I was going to do. I borrowed $75 from my younger brother, and I took a plane and came to New York and uh, stayed in the Edison Hotel for a few nights, just like Holden Caulfield did in Catcher in the Rye. And uh, eventually I moved here for my first job as a reader, assistant editor at McGraw-Hill's trade editorial department. It was almost two decades between then and when Steve got into the news business. 
Enter one of those coincidental but seemingly inevitable events of Steve's life. Another stroke of absolute good fortune came. I was hired by CBS. I was going to work for a man who ran all their publishing, and then he was fired. Somebody told somebody who told somebody the story, and I got a call from a headhunter. Uh, I had an interview with him for three hours, but he didn't say what it was about. At the end of three hours, he said to me, uh, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, you know, I, I really dislike that question. It's just not a phony question to me because, you know, I'm 40 years old and, and I don't, it's a very hard way to think about things. And it seems just rhetorical. I mean, Maybe I didn't like go on that long, but I said, well, I would have liked to have been in newspapers. And then he said to me, have you ever heard of Newsday? And I said, well, yes, I know it's a paper on Long Island. But, and, and I said, I think it's owned by Times Mirror. And he said, well, they're looking for a, their general manager. And I thought, well, nobody's going to give me that job. He said, well, I'd like to talk to the publisher there, and I think he might be interested in talking to you. The headhunter was right. Steve ended up landing an interview with Dave Laventhal, who, at the time, was the publisher of Newsday and group vice president who oversaw the Times Mirror papers in Greenwich, Stamford, and Hartford, Connecticut. Dave will be a very central character in the rest of this story. Uh, Dave's a very shy man. He was uh, one of the great newspaper men that ever lived. He uh, interviewed me in New York the first time, and we sat on a couch side by side, like you were on a date on a banquette. It was a very odd way, and there was a low table in front of us. We had newspapers all over the table, New York Post, Daily News, Times, Newsday. And his opening question was, do you know our newspaper? I said, well, I know you have a really good Albany Bureau. You know, I've seen it on Long Island. He said, well, you mean you guys didn't pay attention to us in City Hall? No, not really. <laughs> good beginning, huh? He then turns the paper. He opens the paper to the then page two of Newsday, which was entirely an index. It was all an index. It was then a largely home-delivered afternoon paper. He said, what do you think of this page? I said, geez, it looks loggy and slow to me, and this is really prime space. I don't know why you would have it all with an index. It's, he looked up and said, I invented this page. <laughs> Pretty much could be time to go home. Um, and then we literally went through the paper, page by page. And he would be asking me about a photo, a headline, a story. And that probably took about an hour and a half. And then he made me sort of do what you've kind of done, go through your life and sort of meet your job. And then we stopped. And he's a very shy man. And we walked to the door and he went, this has been... It was like a very long pause. Delightful. I thought, what a weird word. even. And then he kind of looked like, oh no, that's not quite the word I I meant. 
and I left. And about two and a half, three weeks later, I get a call from the headhunter again. And he asked me to come over. And uh, he said, Dave Laventhal would like to see you again. So I said, yeah. He says to me, well, how do you think it went? I said, well, I, I said, I, I, I kind of, yeah, I, I think I stepped on a couple of sore spots by something, but, you know, I enjoyed it. He wasn't saying much. He can, he's a good questioner, but he said, well, I'm, I shouldn't tell you this, but Dave called me up after your interview and said, I really screwed up the Eisenberg interview. He said, well, what do you mean, Dave? How'd you screw it up? He said, well, I forgot what job I was interviewing him for. He said, I couldn't remember for why, what exactly were we looking at? He said, so I gave him my managing editor interview. It's the one I always like give any sort of person who'd be in some senior. He said, I'll just repeat this. He said he absolutely knows nothing technical about a paper. He doesn't know anything, but he's a natural. Next, Steve went in for several more meetings with Dave. Then he met with other senior leadership at the company. And then at one point, Dave said, what if we were to offer you the job of assistant to the publisher and we were to teach you the newspaper business inside and out, you would be my assistant, you'd be in on everything and you take your chance and see what it leads to. I said, sounds good to me. This decision, Dave's decision to bring in a guy, Steve, from outside the newspaper business was abnormal. Dave was doing something heretofore never done. He was going to bring in the first non-newspaper man into the management of newspapers. And others followed me. But I would be the first. So there was, everybody was going to have to really think about and look at this one. Now, here's what I didn't know. Then, and I'm not sure outside of Dave, anyone quite knew it then, is that Dave had an idea and he was molding it in his mind as how he saw the opportunity for what became New York Newsday, which was a niche just beneath the Times and above the Daily News, coming from this very powerful franchise, Long Island. Yet the people he had working in Long Island were tuned to a suburban newspaper, but he didn't have a New York guy. And I think maybe he saw in me, well, I could, if this guy worked out, maybe he'll be for my next play. As Dave's assistant, Steve got experience in every single department at the newspaper. I literally spent weeks in each department of the paper. I mean, including the boiler room people. There was no part of a newspaper that I didn't spend some time with. I mean, if only the inevitability was there, it was like being an owner's son in a way. I wasn't, but I, but he wanted me to learn every part of it. Why did he want you to learn every part of it? I think he, in the back of his mind, believed that one day, if I worked out, I would be a publisher. So that sort of I was on an accelerated course, and I should learn sort of every, uh, every piece of it. 
And how long did you have this position? It went a lot faster than we all thought. It was barely a year after Dave had hired Steve, a man who Dave said knew nothing technical about newspapers, but was a natural anyway. Steve joined Times Mirror in 1982, and in 1983, this happened. And I remember I was driving him out, and I said, oh, uh, Barbara and I are looking at a, to buy a place in the village, a new, a new place. And his head jerked around. I thought to myself, what does he care? I mean, what's this reaction? And then he came in to see me later in the day and said, um, you know, very shy, uh, do you think you could kind of go slow on buying that house in the village? I said, what do you mean go slow? And, and he said, well, I mean, just like, don't do it right away. I said, why? He said, I can't say. I said, yeah, well, you come home with me tonight and you tell Barbara that we have to go slow and maybe lose this house, but we can't tell her why. <laughs> and you can't tell me why. Then he walked out of the room. He just walked out. He must have made a call or something. He came back and he said to me, you can't talk to anyone, but your life's about to change. That was his phrase. Your life's about to change. And it turned out that I would become the publisher of Stanford and Greenwich. Steve began his job as the publisher of the Stanford Advocate in Greenwich Time in May 1983. With that position, he was tasked with improving the paper's finances. It was only known to about five or six people that we were in the red. But the phrase that was reiterated by Dave to me among the things that I had to accomplish was financial imperative. You've got to get this thing into the black. Uh, and Dave always made clear, you know, everywhere we were, that the better our financial performance, the more leeway people would give you uh, to try new things. And as much as they admired anything you've done journalistically or otherwise, if you were not performing financially, it was an enterprise. And so that had to be fixed. I remember about the ninth week I was there. Maybe it's a little more than that. Maybe it's 12th week. They came in with the weekly. And it was in the black. Maybe it was $800 in the black. And I, Dave made me call him every Thursday morning, 11 o'clock, give him the report. This isn't a $3 billion corporation. Someone want to know how this little guy was doing. I went, we're eight in the black. He said, send it back and have him redo it. I said, Dave, he said, send it back. Call him in, I sent it back. I called him back. He called me and said, you know, we're, even he was like saying, there's people in Los Angeles that are paying attention to this. Can you give me a brief overview of the papers that Times Mirror owned at that time? We owned the Denver Post, the Dallas Times Herald, the Los Angeles Times, uh, we owned the Hartford Current, we owned Stanford and Greenwich, we owned the Allentown Morning Call, and then later we owned the Baltimore Sun. And of course they owned TV, they owned magazines. Originally, Dave had told Steve that he expected him to be the publisher of the Stanford and Greenwich papers for around five years. But then, this happened. 
And uh, then I had another one of those lunches with Dave, and he said, your life's about to change. And he was ready to lift the curtain on New York Newsday. Dave said, uh, you've done a really good job, and we thought we would have you here for five years, but you've got it, it's, it's on track now. You know? And we're gonna start to play, he said something like, we're gonna play the New York Newsday card. What did that mean? It means that we were gonna, they had, they had had a Queens edition, then they were gonna have a New York City edition. Now talk about investments. And uh, so he basically said, uh, he actually said, you're going to come home. Roughly four years after Dave hired Steve at Times Mirror, Steve was named as associate editor of New York Newsday, the paper that Dave had been maneuvering and dreaming of creating for probably years. The tricky part about it was that it had to be a front-loaded investment. I can't give you a paper and say, by the way, please buy this paper every day, and in two or three years it'll be worth reading. We'll be able to add the people and then, you know, it'll be good. No, you've got to put money up in the front of it to start to build the, the uh, columnist, the reportage, the beats, the, the editors, everything that make a paper. I, it was tremendously exciting. How long had it been since anybody had started a paper? And it took real balls. Who knows what the future could have brought had that been allowed to succeed and flourish. What happened to the paper? Bad thing. Award-winning but unprofitable, New York Newsday to close Sunday. Times Mirror Company, seeking to cut costs, announced Friday that it will close New York Newsday, a 10-year-old daily that had enjoyed journalistic success but couldn't gain a profitable foothold in the city's intensely competitive newspaper market. The closing will lead to the elimination of 700 to 800 jobs, including positions both in New York City and Long Island, home of the paper's sister publication, Newsday. Combined, the city and suburban papers employ 3,200 workers. New York Newsday's last day of publication will be Sunday. During its relatively short tenure, New York Newsday won three Pulitzer Prizes, the highest honor in U.S. journalism. However, the paper never turned a profit in heated competition with the New York Post, New York Daily News, and New York Times. Mark H. Willis, who became president and chief executive of Los Angeles-based Times Mirror on June 1st, said, The decision to discontinue the publication of New York Newsday is in no way a reflection on the management of Newsday, which I believe is both excellent and very dedicated, nor on the quality of New York Newsday, which is an excellent newspaper. The particular situation in New York Newsday's market led us to conclude that we would not be able to earn an adequate rate of return. We intend to continue to produce quality newspapers and be competitive, and the best way to do that is to have a strong financial performance. Steve's perspective on the matter is a little different. Um, Dave uh, Lamethal, who's now deceased, um, who was the star of Times Mirror, uh, had the onset of Parkinson's, and he had to um, slow down and eventually leave his job. There was a transition that was going to be made with the retirement of the CEO, of which I believe Dave would have held that job, and then they would have got a number two. And but it 
threw it into sort of very chaotic position. It's terrible when you see a corporation lose its will. We were the most competitive element in the corporation head on. It did hit a period where it wasn't doing as well as we learned that lesson earlier on. That brings your critics out. Well, there were people in Los Angeles who didn't like the style, the panache. They sort of didn't like New York. But when Dave was king, see, he softened it. He knew how to. And um, there was a very, very bad transition to a new corporate leadership. And uh, a man who the New York Post headline called the serial killer came to be the new CEO. He had come from General Mills, you know, cereals. And among the things that this guy took a certain pride in was not what he could build, but what he could close. Uh, as much as I spoke about cost mindfulness, uh, you know, you can go out the wrong door with it. And you can start to have a chief financial officer's mentality or that Lyndon Johnson budget director. No, no, it can go the wrong way. And... He kept saying, well, if you look at New York Newsday alone, it's losing money. No, we already went to the board of that investment phase. Here's what's going to happen. And anyway, it was a bit of very artificial accounting to look at New York Newsday on its own. There were probably only three people in the corporation who really knew the Los Angeles Times and Newsday. And I was one of them because I was executive vice president at the LA Times when I, before I came back. The question wasn't, how can we change the speed and gear so that we sustain New York Newsday, but we reduce its cost, we make it a different level of investment? In other words, how do you, how do you get to the promised land, but maybe we got to send four camels back? Not this guy. We're not going there. Let's just cut it off. Let's kill it. Let's make an end of it. And uh, that'll be our triumph for today. You know, send 800 people home. Uh, and eventually, that's what happened. And um, uh, he had his collaborators uh, from inside the corporation. And our protector was just not in a position anymore. And um, sort of one of the great newspaper experiments ever uh, was stopped. So you live through one of those, and you don't forget that. You you talk about the time that New York Newsday was in its full capacity with such great energy, and you look so crestfallen when talking about its collapse. Why did the success and then failure of the paper mean so much to you? Sometime in my life, I made kind of a bargain. And it was for somebody with his own ambit and personality and character and whatever makes me, that um, I wouldn't do something off on my own, but I would be part of some kind of institution. And in exchange for that, I would get uh, what you get for being part of an institution that you love and that you want to support and you, and you want for its success, you get the stature and prestige of the institution and you get 
its sway, its power, and the rest, um, so much of your own identity becomes interwoven with the ideals, the values, the place, the regard of it. Um, but when I look at, uh, you know, New York Newsday, Los Angeles Times, especially New York Newsday, Newsday, um, uh, you can see that part of me um, was... I help make those places, they help make me. So what happened in your career once the paper folded? Well, the guy who killed it, he asked me, is there anything else in the corporation? There's nothing I could do. So six months after it closed, I left. Was there a day when it closed? Oh, yeah. He had a meeting like on a Friday and... The Sunday edition was the last. It was boom. You know, it wasn't... You, you found out on a Friday? and then Yeah, it was it like a Thursday or Friday, and Sunday was our last. We just closed it down. How did he tell you? We had a, a couple-hour meeting where several people were there where we were trying to make the case. And then he would just say things like, well, this isn't going to make 15% carry through on its own. This won't do. You know, we were we were in the crude way they used to put it, shoveling shit against the tide. But it was, he, his mind was made up. So it was all about the numbers? Yep. All about the numbers, whatever he thought it stood for, showing a kind of rigor or whatever the hell he said in his own head. Were you surprised when he told you? No. Because Dave, in his own way, had been warning me that he was worried worried about where I was going to go when I had had a review you know they give you your sort of annual review or something the two guys who started to oversee the eastern papers one of the things they said to me was would you be the right publisher for Newsday if we didn't have New York Newsday I mean my face looked like your face right now what kind of a question is that what do you mean if we didn't have New York News Day? Uh, I mean, I had thought myself the next step up, but I came home, you know, and I thought to myself that day, this could be the beginning of the end. These people are actually thinking about getting rid of New York News Day. Why couldn't they see what you and your colleagues saw about the vibrancy and significance of the paper? I don't want to say something self-congratulatory about how smart, wise, and deep we are and how shallow, myopic, and incompetent they were. Um, They just didn't understand this place, this city, this ethos, the whole proposition. They just didn't get it, you know, and in some ways they didn't want to get it. How did you deal with the frustration and, could I say, even anger when you found out that New York Newsday was closing? I don't know if I've ever been able to really deal with it. That was very bitter. We were all bitter, bitter. And it doesn't go away. So there's a lot more to this story that we don't have time to go over on this show. 
but I encourage you to check out our show notes for some links to stories where you can learn more. A brief rundown is that roughly five years after Mark Willis, aka the serial killer, closed New York Newsday, the family who owned Times Mirror Company sold the company out from under him without his knowledge. Crazy, right? In an interview with a reporter who's now one of my colleagues, Dan Har, Mark called himself a lightning rod in the news industry. For the purpose of today's episode, I do want to jump back to Steve's story and find out what happened to him after the paper closed. Well, over the period of 15 years, you know, I became what I was going to become when we first started this conversation, when I was going to be an English professor. And somehow I got really lucky. And by a little bending, twisting, and people giving me a chance, I wound up teaching British and American literature, uh, literary journalism, at Berkeley, the University of Texas at Austin, at Davidson, at Yale, giving lectures at Oxford. And I returned to the, uh, the joys of reading and talking about what you read seriously and, and to being part of a new generation. Because when you teach, you know, you, you get a ticket into the room with a bunch of young minds and a whole new generation. And, um, well, I loved it. And, and in some sense, it rescued me. And in some sense, it brought parts of me to the fore again I hadn't, you know, been able to use in that way for a long time. I can report Steve is doing well. Also since Newsday, he helped rescue Adelphi University, working as its interim president, and he's still writing. I recommend one of his latest pieces in The American Scholar, discussing the 50th anniversary of Bobby Kennedy's assassination. Finally, thank you to everyone who's listened to this season of Rally. If anything, I hope you've learned that failure is okay, and sometimes even necessary to success. In making sure that Rally ever happened, thank you to my editor, Hugh Bailey, Deb West, Tony Gonzalez, Emily Prokop, and Planet Money host Kenny Malone. On today's show, you heard the voice talents of my colleagues Tom Milana and Justin Papp. I'm Michaela Bennett. Thanks for listening.